There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, Voice America listeners, and welcome. I'm Chris Meek, and this is Next Steps Forward. Our focus is in personal empowerment, commitment to well-being, and the motivation to achieve more than ever thought possible. I'll host leaders from the worlds of business, philanthropy, sports, entertainment, politics, and public policy on the show to talk about the ingredients for a better life for every American. Uh, so welcome, everyone, and apologies today. We had some uh, technical difficulties. Uh, the year of 2020 and COVID-19 just keeps getting better and better, so apologies for just coming over the air today not recording. Um, but very excited about today's show. Uh, I have a, a very special, wonderful guest, uh, someone I'm honored to, to call a friend of mine now, uh, United States Navy SEAL Commander Rourke Denver. Uh, Commander, thanks for being with us today. Uh, thanks for having me, Chris. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, so interesting story of, of how <clears throat> I came into uh, to contact with Rourke. Um, came across a, uh, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal five years ago called The United States of American Sniper. And it, it was written by, uh, by Commander Denver regarding Navy SEAL Chris Kyle uh, in the movie American Sniper. And I thought, this is somebody I need to, to reach out to, I need to meet, and you know, start doing some Googling on, on, uh, on Rourke, and then found, oh yeah, I remember this guy from the movie Active Valor. So did some more digging around, and then found out that, uh, for those of you who saw the show last week, you may have seen some of the props on my desk, uh, but I'm a very proud Syracuse University uh, alum, uh, and found out that the Commander Denver is as well. So reached out to the alumni office, and they connected us, and, and so our story begins. Um, you know, so I think, Rourke, maybe we can start with a lot of things to talk about here, obviously, but, sure. you know, how's a guy from California end up in one of the snow capitals of the world in Syracuse, New York? <laughs> well, it was uh, it was a circuitous <laughs> route for sure. My dad and uh, both my parents, we actually, you may not even know this, although we've probably talked about it uh, in the past. Um, I, I've got actually a little bit of a legacy at Syracuse. My grandfather went to Syracuse. My mom grew up in Syracuse, went to Nottingham High School, which is, you know, in the shadows of, uh, of the sure. buildings on Syracuse University. And then she attended Syracuse. My father grew up in Brooklyn. He went to Syracuse and rode crew there in the, in the 60s. So my parents met, uh, migrated west. So my brother and I were born out in the Bay Area, California. But we had a lot of roots um, back in both, you know, New York City and upstate New York. My mom still had a house that uh, her dad had the good sense to buy in the, you know, 50s up on the, the St. Lawrence River in the Great Lakes area. So in summers, we get back to New York. And then, you know, as a young man, I think a lot of people share this, I'm sure as a young woman as well, you know, your, your kind of parents' school sort of becomes your school sports-wise. I was lucky that, you know, my dad and mom both went to Syracuse and were, were athletes. So, you know, the, the, the great basketball teams and football teams, Teams of, of my youth that were in Syracuse were kind of my team. Um, but having grown up in the Bay Area, I, I had no, you know, plan to head east for school. Um, athletics was my real, uh, you know, kind of grounding and foundational level of success. Team sports in particular, I was getting recruited um, to play at big time water polo programs, which is a huge West 
uh, West Coast sport, but, you know, water polo is kind of my primary sport. And I thought for sure I was going to play at one of the big powerhouses, Cal or Stanford or, or uh, USC or one of those programs out West. And then my sophomore year of high school um, out there in the Bay Area, a kid had moved from the East Coast out to the Bay Area, uh, was a big lacrosse player, couldn't believe there was really no kind of public lacrosse. A bunch of the private schools, and so, some public schools had it, um, but very few. And so he started a lacrosse club. I signed up. Um, so I never touched lacrosse stick really to my sophomore year of high school. And then I just picked up the game really fast. I kind of had the size and strength to probably play at an elite level. I went back to a summer camp at Syracuse and the, the legendary coach Roy Simmons Jr., who was still running the program at that point, um, liked sure. what he saw, invited me to come back and, and the rest, as they say, is history. So that, that's what brought me east. Yeah, that is fascinating. So first of all, I never knew about water polo. So, so thanks yeah. for sharing that. And that would make more sense for a guy from the West Coast, you know, being a water sport versus, you know, lacrosse, which seems, you know, at the time, and it was predominantly Northeast. Uh, but for those of you who don't know about Rook Denver, uh, you know, so picking up a lacrosse stick for the first time as sophomore year in high school, becomes an All-American lacrosse player, becomes captain of the Syracuse team, and wins two national championships during his tenure. So uh, clearly just a natural talent, uh, athletic ability. And, and so, uh, again, as an Orange alum, I appreciate that. And thank you uh, for your service to, to Syracuse. Uh, oh, and, this, yeah. you know, I guess an FYI for you, I also rode uh, when I was at Syracuse. So I'm sure uh, I saw your dad's name somewhere at the boathouse out there. Oh, you have for sure. And, you know, some of the new coaching and, and kind of the program having a resurgence has been great. And he's been back to some of the alumni events. So you guys probably have rubbed elbows. Absolutely. Awesome. No, that's great. So that leads me to my next question. I guess, random question for you is, okay, so we figured out how Rourke Denver goes from the Bay Area to snow capital of the U.S. After graduating Syracuse, what did you do to make you become a Navy SEAL? How, what was that journey like? Yeah, you know, I, I, I never um, distinguished myself really until about my junior year at Syracuse in, in the four walls of a classroom. It was just not a place I found tremendous um, both enjoyment or or success. You know, I was always a disciplined kid. I was always a regiment kid, but I just didn't I just didn't like most of, of the basic studies. You know, of course when you get to you know your senior years of uh, of your collegiate experience, you get to start picking classes and, and get into the meat of what you studied. And um, as any good warrior would study, I was a I was a liberal arts and fine arts major at Syracuse, you know, because I just loved I loved architecture, I loved art, I loved of history and, and so those courses really appealed to me and I had no no plan as to what I was going to do next obviously as a, as a fine arts major the the place I, I pull most of my I guess intellectual horsepower is literature and being a lifelong reader and that that seed was planted by my brother or my father um, to both my brother and I so we're all voracious readers we always have been we're always sharing books back and forth and my senior year, my dad sent me a copy of Winston Churchill's My Early Life, which is an autobiography he wrote kind mm -hmm. of at the end of his life chronicling about his first 30 years. Something about that book uh, just was like a lightning bolt for military service. I just really felt if I wanted to truly test, learn, develop, uh, and execute leadership at the highest level and cut my teeth in that arena that, that you'd be hard-pressed to find, uh, you know, more... I guess, uh, difficult crucible than, than military service and, and, and within an elite unit. So I, I knew at that point I wanted to serve. I walked into a recruiter's office down at Armory Square in Syracuse, New York, and said, uh, hey, I want to be an officer in the Navy and I want to be a SEAL. 
uh, when the because uh, once I once I did a little bit of research on knowing I wanted to serve, I, I really did want to try and shoot for uh, you know a top or elite unit. My my background, as we descri- discussed earlier in, in water polo, I had I had you know tremendous capacity for comfort and kind of strength and ability in the water. So um, this elite little program in Southern California where they where they birth and and uh, uh, raise seals. Uh, had about an 80% attrition rate historically, and that sounded like the right odds to me. So, yeah, I threw my hat in the ring, and it it uh, it it proved to be challenging, you know, across every spectrum. But it took me almost two years, um, even with what I thought was a pretty good degree, pedigree, you know, leadership background as a captain of the team, um, to get my spot as an officer in SEAL training. But I, I I got it after one failed attempt, you know, just in the initial application, and then I got picked up the second time because I don't I don't like being told no, and uh, and that <laughs> into you know officer school, and then and then straight to uh, the training grounds out in San Diego, and then a, a twenty year career in in the SEAL teams. Fantastic, that, that's fascinating. Thank you. And we'll talk a little bit more about, about your service and, and life as a SEAL later in the program. Uh, but in the beginning, I, I mentioned the movie Act of Valor. Yeah. And one of my all-time favorite war movies, if there is such a thing. So we've talked about journey from West Coast to East Coast. We've talked about journey from college to becoming a SEAL and being the elite in the world. How do you then go from being a SEAL to an actor? <laughs> yeah, well, the actors probably... <laughs> a lot of random things here. Yeah, no, that and the and the actor truly. I think even though I starred in a film that that shockingly became at least in its uh, release the number one movie in America, actor would still be uh, quite a stretch. You know, we I was running um, the first phase of training and then all the advanced phases of training out in San Diego in my in my active duty job. Uh, we were seeing a, a huge decline or at least a depression in the number of new recruits we had coming in and the guys that were aging out and getting ready to retire and then nothing but a ramp up in the the work and the requirement for special operators on the battlefield. And so they wanted to figure out a way to grow special operations across, you know, Army, Navy, Air Force, any any special operator, they wanted more of those, but they wanted to figure out how to do that without obviously, you know, um, degrading or lowering the standards. And so we had done some filming, not me, but some filming, uh, a film crew had come in to basically update, you know, our website at the SEAL community, just to just to have something that that was current, you know, nothing had really been filmed about the SEAL since the 80s. And so in updating that, that film crew basically got an opportunity through the senior leadership of uh, Naval Special Warfare, which is the SEALs senior kind of brass and leadership that maybe there's an opportunity to build a bigger project and uh, uh, a theatric release that would, of course, you know, very much highlight the ideals, the the teamwork, the brotherhood, the the service, the family component of what we do and why we do what we do. And, and that's what was born from it. And so a bunch of us were pulled in uh, to interview with the film company just to give them background. The film company was planning to go back up to Los Angeles and, you know, cast Vin Diesel or Tom Cruise or something like that to be the SEAL, you know, commander and, and run the run the mission. And then after these interviews, the film company said, I honestly feel like it'd be easier to teach SEALs to act than actors to be SEALs if we want to get this thing right and make it authentic. So they approached the teammates and I to, to participate. Everybody to a man <clears throat> said no. This is not what we do. It's not what we, uh, you know, signed up for. So no, thank you, but appreciate it. if we can give guidance to make it authentic. Sounds good. So we stayed some conversations. Then all of a sudden the senior leadership said, hey, 
we're going to put uh, a handful of you guys on actual Navy orders. I mean, I have a set of orders, just like you'd get sent to go to sniper school or a hand-to-hand fighting course or communications course or medical to um, participate in uh, what would be a first of its kind kind of recruiting uh, marketing effort to produce this film. And so once you get a set of orders, they're, they're called orders, not invitations. And you, uh, <laughs> you go do what's asked of you, but, um, and, and I'll be careful with that. I mean, nobody had their arm twisted to the point of having to do it. We just realized there was an opportunity to have all the guys that are in that film really are, you know, highly regarded reputation wise combat veterans, most with multi tours, uh, in the combat theater, both Iraq and Afghanistan. And so it felt like we could represent the, uh, community authentically and hopefully do so without embarrassing us. And that was born from that project. Fantastic. You know, I'm just envisioning, <clears throat> excuse me, putting makeup on you, but I guess you didn't really have to because you're in your, your uniform the whole time. So it was just very, very natural. And did you ever think that Vin Diesel and Work Denver would be in the same breath in terms of being the same person? No, no, I, I, I had no, no vision that this would be possible. And, and uh, an anecdote that, that you'll probably enjoy is that, the very first scene we filmed was kind of a scene actually at my old house in San Diego um, where my character is getting ready to deploy overseas and about the only um, kind of family member in the film that wasn't the actual family member of the operator was, was the gal that played my wife in the movie. My bride had actually just delivered our first, um, our first child like two weeks before and was like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to be on camera uh, for the next week or two. That doesn't sound like a good deal. But the very first scene I filmed is kissing this blonde actress goodbye on the front porch of my house with my actual bride in the other room watching the whole thing on the teleprompter. And it definitely felt significantly more dangerous than any combat mission I ever experienced. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, so I appreciate that story. Thank you very much. I love it. And I guess the last question regarding the movie is your role, uh, you, you were Lieutenant Rourke. Did they just yeah. transpose your first name to your last? Yeah, they, they, they were kind of trying to figure out. I mean, we wanted to create a little bit of, of real world, not anonymity, but the distance between our actual names and the, and the characters that we're playing. But the director, you know, kind of loved my name and really thought there was, you know, some, uh, you know, I guess, strength or steel in it. So he just kind of put my first name as my last name and, and, and you know, we, we wrote it out. Terrific. So maybe as a follow-up to that, you know, I touched on the op-ed that, you know, introduced me to you a few years ago. Yeah. We've talked about the movie and, you know, we've heard over the last several years and certainly since um, the, the, the capture and, and killing of Bin Laden, Navy SEALs and special ops folks aren't supposed to really talk about what they do or promote uh, that role. You know, we, we've been in a movie, you've been in an op-ed, you're an author, what was what made you make that transition? What helps you yeah. move into that author from from warrior space? Yeah, I try and be you know obviously careful and and kind of um, you know circumspect and, and and humble about this. And I, I think you know you know me well, and I hope the listeners kind of can hear um, I guess the truth or conviction in the way I say this. I I I don't want to ever throw you know stones in a glass house in the sense that you know there is this 
you know, moniker of the quiet professional of not advertising the nature of our work and what we do. And, and I respect that utterly. And I think, you know, most people that will serve certainly in special operations will never, you know, talk about or discuss at least publicly, you know, the nature of their business or what they do. I, I do think there is um, not a failing, but an opportunity potentially missed when you circle the wagon so much that the world doesn't understand what we've learned, what we know, how we see the world, how that might inform policy, senior leadership, and the way we kind of impact the world as, as citizen soldiers, you know, both at home and abroad. So as I said, Winston Churchill was a book I read. That's the reason I joined the Navy. So a book was a spark, spark that lit the fire for me to serve. And so when it came to writing, I really thought there was an opportunity to write. You know, the movie was a set of orders. I mean, we went and did that because we were tasked to go do that. So that somewhat answers that tale. And we were very, very, um, you know, focused on making sure it was authentic and highlighted the right things about, you know, our love for one another, our love for this country and our desire to serve. The book was uh, a departure in that there weren't that many SEAL books out in the world. Marcus Luttrell had written his and, and, and my teammate from the op-ed, Chris Kyle, had written his book about his, you know, sniper exploits. I actually thought there was a gap somewhat in the market that a lot of those books were about, you know, an individual combat event that, that became you know, big time news or an individual warriors whose exploits became big news of the stuff of legend. And so I said, you know, as an officer being one of the first officers to write a book that I could talk about, hopefully the higher ideals, the things we believe in, the way we, we, we raise and grow and train and mentor warriors to be prepared for the battlefield, both on and off, how we become, um, you know, thinking shooters in the battle space and the lessons that I called from that time that I now use in, you know, the corporate world and consulting and, and teaching uh, and, and the things that I help advise senior leaders in, in their path as, 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 you know, good stewards of their organization or the job they're doing. So the book grew out of that. It was, it was to hit the higher ideals and, you know, you've read um, you've read my book there's not a whole lot of chest thumping or I did this or you know we that it was much more hey this is what we learned and this is what you could use in your life um, as opposed to just look at me I you know I killed this many people so that that was the focus of the book was if it created a spark for someone else to serve or illuminated ideas that could help senior leaders that'd be worth its time and I, I've probably lost track of the number of young men that have reached out to me that like hey I read your book I'm going into the service whether it be seals or marines or, or army and um, that's pretty satisfying. Thank you. And for our listeners, the book is Damn Few, Making the Modern Seal Warrior by Rourke Denver. Uh, this will be up on our show's website in the coming days. And I guess maybe as a follow-up to your, your comments, Rourke, I just want to read uh, the first page of your book that, that's who you made the, the tribute to of why you wrote the book. It says, for my wife, my heartbeat. For my mom, my champion. For my dad, my compass. For my brother, my archetype. For my girls, my fuel. And for my warrior brothers, my deepest respect. You know, that obviously sums up who and what you are as a man, as a father, as a patriot. So thank you uh, for, for that. And thank you for bringing that to life for everybody. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. So, you know, you and I talked last week about a couple of things to, to review and discuss for our listeners. And four things you love to talk about, which I thought were perfect for the show, which is why you're here. Leadership, culture, influence, human performance. Yeah. Four very different things, different words and phrases, but four very similar concepts, things that are tied together that are interwoven in terms of the fabric or the fiber of who and what we are. 
you know, what makes Rourke Denver tick? You know, these are four bullet points here. How do you weave all that together to make you the successful person that you are today? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, it's certainly, I guess, a tapestry of experiences and, and desire to go out and kind of seek, you know, opportunity and learning and experiences that would hopefully lend towards both service and then my own personal growth. I think I was aware of that as a young age. I mean, there probably wasn't an athletic team I think I was ever on where I didn't end up the captain. I think often when you're, you know, a star, an all-star athlete, a lot of times, sometimes the best performers become the captain. But I think there's also those intangibles of where if a team votes for who the captain is, uh, like when I was in college or, or you know, there's a, a disciplined way that, that people kind of ascend to those positions. There's got to be something other than just your exploits on the field. So I think leadership is something that I always uh, gravitated towards. I was always willing to, you know, take the heat. I wanted the ball when the game was on the line or I wanted the pressure situation to be uh, in my sphere of control. And so those were things that I kind of naturally gravitated to. People ask all the time and it's one of the, the you know, kind of time honored questions. Are leaders born or are they made? And I don't duck the question. I think it's both. I mean, I think I think there's people that have a natural kind of proclivity or charisma or whatever it might be, that kind of secret sauce that people will look towards them, he or her, um, for leadership and look for them to kind of take the mantle and, and, and guide the direction of an organization. And then I think if you're smart as a, one of those leaders, if you have that, then you couple that with, uh, you know, tremendous amount of reading and, and study and, and uh, development and growth on what works, what doesn't, throw out the stuff that doesn't, keep the stuff that does, and, and hopefully think of others before yourself. So I think leadership was just a very natural kind of path for me. And, and so I want to be an officer and go into an elite unit and be, you know, be the person in charge. What you find in that organization is the folks you lead um, are so exceptional, are so capable of operating um, in the absence of orders that your leadership takes on a very kind of interesting path. It's not so much domineering, although I saw a lot of different leadership styles, but it's much more, how do I serve my guys? How do I guide them? How do I steer the train um, or, or kind of wrangle the, the wild horses to make sure we keep our compass bearing and, and don't lose sight of the goal on the battlefield, but let them run and let them do the things that they know how to do well. Um, but I always loved being a member of a team. I always loved, you know, seeing people flourish, seeing folks that would struggle with their journey. And, and if there's a way I could offer a thought or a concept or, or guidance to help them with that, those are things that really appealed to me. Um, the culture of the SEAL teams is very flat organizationally. We call each other by, you know, nicknames and are very familiar. There's not a lot of organizations in the military structure that function that way and would do so successfully. We seem to be able to do that and strike that balance between respect and leadership and kind of followership as, as we go through that um, journey. You know, the human performance level is just off the charts in the SEAL teams. You basically at this point have – you know, elite level athletes, thinkers, and and kind of um, problem solvers that enter those ranks. So what you get on the back end of millions of dollars of training is a very, very capable, um, focus-driven, lethal, problem-solving operator that can, you know, perform in austere environments um, with very little guidance and make good decisions for themselves, their teammates, and, and for the country. Um, and so, you know, all that stuff came together in the SEAL teams, and now I've taken that, and I do a lot of consulting with high-impact leaders, corporate America, big stage, you know, kind of uh, speaking events on, on training and, and, and human performance and culture and all those things we talked about. They all, all were just kind of natural parts of my life that I've then put a lot of experience and um, 
you, you know, education behind. And I've just had a lot of fun with it. I really enjoy it. And I, I try and keep my, my bearings on serving others and thinking of others before myself. And if I can do that, I seem to land on my feet. When I start thinking too much about me and what I need, I tend to uh, go down a rabbit hole. I don't like being in. Well, you're living proof of the saying, leaders aren't made, they're born. Uh, so appreciate all you're doing both, uh, as a SEAL, but also after life uh, as a SEAL in terms of your, your work doing, you know, high-performance uh, motivational speaking, work with corporations, business leaders, philanthropic leaders, and so thank you for that. You talked a bit about training, and I think I got this off your website. You say, train constantly. In the heat of battle, we don't rise to the occasion. We degrade to our level of training, so train hard. Can you expand on that a little bit for, for our listeners in terms of maybe a little bit more generically and, and what people can think about of, okay, I'm in this leadership position, whether it be in business, philanthropy, sports, whatever it is, what are things that they could be thinking of to keep them, A, at the peak performance level that they're at, and B, to keep them going? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the practice and the training we do in our life is going to, you know, be a one for one, you know, kind of what or who you become. I mean, what you discipline yourself to, what um, you know, habits and behaviors you develop, whether it be through training or omission, is going to equal kind of your level of performance or your level of kind of impact on what you're capable of doing. So, you know, we, we particularly, you know, in the SEAL teams, one of the things I enjoy so much is we train so hard. I mean, our, our basic training is so um, Spartan and challenging that for the most part, you know, most people that show up never see the finish line. But even beyond that, I think a lot of people don't realize once you get through the basic course, the training gets even harder because now you're required to train with, you know, real weapons and close proximity to buddies and explosives and combat tactics that that are at the far extreme of what could be required on the battlefield. And, and the reason we do that and we break eggs, I mean, we lose guys in training um, almost every year and not, you know, not by um, – you know, in frivolous ways, but I mean, we, we have people that we, we push it so hard in training that we do um, do damage to ourselves in that point. But the, the lesson is when you get out on the battlefield, um, as I said, you know, instead of somebody just all of a sudden jumping out of their skin and doing something nobody's ever seen, what we really found is people kind of, you know, just reverted to whatever the highest level of training was. So if your highest level of training was not that high, good chance you're going to perform at a level that, that that's commensurate with that. If you push the training to the far extreme, then when bullets are flying and the chaos unfolds, you can, you know, take a breath, keep your composure and execute the duties, you know, as close to flawlessly as possible. And I think that very much plays in life. I think we don't do enough training um, in anything we do, whether it be, you know, your, your spiritual part of your life, your mental part of life with reading and acquisition, you know, the acquisition of knowledge. Um, you know, great athletes have coaches. I mean, Michael Jordan had Phil Jackson. I mean, all these top performers, they, they train and learn and practice. And we don't put enough of that into our personal lives, whether it be, you know, training and how to be a parent, how to be a great husband or wife or, or run a marriage or a family, uh, let alone our workspace. A lot of people start mailing it in once they've got themselves locked into kind of behavior profile. And that's a mistake. And so getting uncomfortable and pushing yourself, I think, is where the growth is. So that, that's how I try and you know, translate what I learned in the, 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 the heat of combat and training, that, that if you train to something, you'll be better for it in your actual duties. You, know, you touched on family there. We're going to talk about that in the second half of the show. We also mentioned, uh, and I find it fascinating how you're, you're translating your leadership role and abilities into being 
a leader for the family, for lack of a better phrase. Um, and I know it's your favorite subject to talk about, so we'll save that, you know, best for last. You talk, talk about a couple, talked about a couple different things here about people getting locked in and kind of being, you know, status quo, if you will, in terms of no more growth. Yeah. You know, is that what you feel is what most people fail to grasp or master in terms of expanding their, their growth and leadership abilities? Well, what you find is if you talk to a master, somebody that's an actual master in a subject, which is one of my favorite things, it doesn't matter if it's basket weaving, um, you know, combat tactics or woodworking, the master, the person that has truly learned more than everybody else is also the greatest student. They're constantly seeking new knowledge and new skills to develop themselves, whereas the beginner usually gets overwhelmed by the process. So yes, I think in our regular lives, if uh, you recognize that you have way more to learn and can never stop learning, that, that, that the human condition and mind and, and kind of body is designed to just absorb tremendous amounts of information and learn new skills, and, and we're better for when we're learning new skills and getting uncomfortable, um, you'll be on a really good path to, to super high performance and I think a tremendous amount of personal you know, kind of pride and passion in what you're doing. Perfect. Thank you very much for that. Ladies and gentlemen, Voice America listeners, we're with Commander Rourke Denver. My name is Chris Meek. This is Next Steps Forward, and we'll be right back after this short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. Good morning, good afternoon, Voice America listeners. This is Chris Meek with Next Steps Forward. Thanks for joining us again today. For those of you just joining us, we are with United States Navy SEAL Commander Rourke Denver. Uh, and just to give a little recap of, of Commander Denver's uh, longest storied career, his team has conducted over 200 missions, including sniper operations, direct assaults, special reconnaissance, and ground patrols. Commander Denver was awarded the Bronze Star with V for Valorous Action and Combat. Denver is the founder of Ever Onward, a fresh new brand designed to use Navy SEAL principles to call leaders to take action, to suffer, and to be bold so they can reform at their highest levels. You know, we haven't talked about your business yet, uh, Commander. We'll get to that a little bit later. You know, we talked briefly about what led you to become a SEAL uh, post-college graduation. Can you talk our listeners through a bit of, in terms of the training involved, what it takes to, to become a SEAL, all those moving parts? I think I mentioned earlier, it's about a 75 to 80% attrition rate from the 60s to present day. So most of the people that show up that training program do not see the finish line. Um, I think those that do often share a lot of commonalities. They have a tremendous um, disdain for mediocrity, a desire to be part of a team. They're willing to suffer. They're willing to work hard uh, towards an end state. And they, you know, more than anything, just don't have any ability to quit no matter what crucible is kind of thrown in front of them. Um, you know, the program is, I think a lot of people believe SEAL training is, you know, you'd show up at our compound, it'd look like something out of, you know, James Bond meet and cue, you know, people repelling in off secret helicopters and laser retina scans and, you know, unbelievable piece of gear and equipment. And it's just concrete, sand and cold water. <laughs> we use very, very old methods of suffering to, to push people to their limits and see if they're going to quit when things get hard. And if you don't, then, then we know we can train you and hone you into a sharp edge that's able to do the nation's work. Um, so it's a whole lot of misery, cold water and suffering. And you do that in a big group until that group whittles down to a small number of folks that see the finish line. And then they go on to the advanced training to become SEALs. My class started with around 160, 180 uh, guys that started day one and we, we graduated 22. 22 young lions were there wow. on, on Friday graduation. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's not for the faint of heart for sure. Incredible. And in terms of the 200 missions, you know, I know you can't share a lot of details. You know, how do you prep for that? How does it go when you get the green light? Okay, we're deploying. We've got this. Here's our target. Here's our bogey. What are all the moving parts involved with that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's more deliberate more often than not than I think people realize. I mean, when you're in the combat theater, you get uh, you put in a lot of time to really just learn your environment. You learn the, you know, the politics that are placed in there, who's in charge, where the bad guys are, 
uh, how the threat scenarios unfold, and then how, as a service member in the greater architecture of a, a large military machine, uh, you can influence the battlefield in a positive way, both for your teammates and to impact the enemy. So all those things, um, you know, play on the leadership and the team and how they're going to kind of cut up the battle space. Some taskings or mission sets get pushed to you. You know, here's a requirement. Here's a bad guy at X location. You know, go get them. And then you have a very deliberate planning process for the most part to make that happen. So, you know, if we know bad guy X is at this location at this time of day and he's been deemed, you know, the person that, that, that we're going after for, you know, call it a kill or capture mission, then we're going to do a bunch of deliberate planning that we practice in training. As I mentioned earlier, the unbelievable amount of training we do at this very process, you know, how do you build a mission plan? How do you get input from all your folks? How do your, you know, sister and adjacent units that are supporting roles, um, you know, the aviation crew that could be flying you to the target, the, the quick reaction force that could kind of help you if you got in trouble, um, medical evac um, programs and how you're going to get out of their communication plan and how you're talking to yourselves and everybody else in the battle space. All these things get worked out in advance of the mission. Then we want run rehearsals once that mission has been approved. Um, that Another part is briefing it up the senior chain of command where they'll either approve or uh, disapprove or ask you, to re- ask you to rework the mission to get approval once it, it's approved. And that's based on their confidence, your ability to do the job you say you can do or that they need. Um, which is just like briefing, you know, business plan or, or looking for funding for a company. These things are the same. You're going to, you know, build a deck to try and get financing or get somebody's confidence that you can, um, you know, build something and do something successfully. That's why I think there's such tremendous parallels from the military to the corporate space and, and the business world. And then you do rehearsals and get ready to go execute the mission. And, you know, the lessons that you pull from that are, are time eternal and, and the type of thing you get to take for your life. You know, we could plan to the most finite detail. And as soon as bullets started flying, it always seemed like the plan somewhat went out the window and then it's time to get creative and kind of work the process through the chaos to get to a good end state. And our guys are hugely creative and untethered to do that. So um, to be honest, those 200 combat missions were, were a lot of fun, even though um, they certainly cost teammates lives and, and put us in harm's way. It, it really suited my personality and I think our teammates' personality, um, which made it, uh, you know, very, very compelling and, and exciting to be a part of. 200 missions are, you know, to quote you, a lot of fun. Uh, I guess that's what makes you a Navy SEAL and differentiates you and your teammates from, from the rest of us, thinking that life-threatening missions are, air quotes, fun. So, again, thank you for that. Yep. You're welcome. In your book you talk about random acts of instructor violence. Can you <laughs> yep. share with our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah. So that's, that's going back to the training compound. So one of the, one of the things I think is a real power and strength of our community is, is everybody that becomes a SEAL at some point, not everybody, but people will be selected out of those ranks once they're past sometimes their operational time or need a break or maybe are coming off an injury, will go back to the training compound and become an instructor. So SEALs train SEALs. I mean, we'll bring in external experts all the time once you get to the actual team to learn skill sets and leverage technology and, um, you know, understand shooting and fighting and all the different things at the highest level. But at the basic course, it's pretty much SEALs that run the program. And when I came back to the program to be, you know, one of the senior officers in charge of it, I coined this term, random acts of instructor violence. That sounds funny, but I actually think it's one of our true strengths. And uh, I guess, you know, do it quickly or succinctly. Um, 
if you finish a day of training as a class, let's say there's 50 people left in the class, there's going to be a senior officer or a senior enlisted that runs that class, the actual budge candidates, the trainees that are hoping to become SEALs. At the end of every day of training, they're going to meet with a SEAL instructor that's kind of in charge of that class and say, hey, what's the schedule for the next day? That instructor might say, hey, tomorrow morning, we want the entire class at the pool deck at 06 a.m. We want you in perfect ranks. We want your, you know, sea bag or gear bag behind you. We want your fins and mask at a 45 degree angle right in front of you. We want your knife razor sharp and be ready for training. Do you have any questions? No. Okay. Beat it. And so the next morning comes, you can imagine if the instructor cadre shows up at, at 06 a.m. and the class is still kind of unpacking their bags or behind, not in ranks, you could pretty much guarantee what that day is going to be like. That day is going to turn into absolute Armageddon, as bad a beatings as we can throw on them physically to punish them for failing to meet the standard, not pay attention to the detail that they needed in the timeline we asked of them. And so we'll beat them mercilessly. Every once in a while, though, we'll show up having given that guidance, and we'll show up even a couple minutes early. Maybe we show up at, at, at 5.55 a.m., and no sooner do we get up that pull tech, we realize that class has been there for 15 minutes before we ask them to be ready. They're in perfect ranks. Bags are where we act them. Knives sharp as a katana blade. Exactly what we asked them. And you can even almost see a little grin on the leadership of the class's face like, yeah, we did it right. And we will beat them worse than when they failed. And what will happen is a lot of people will, you know, or not a lot of people, but occasionally we'll get three or four people that will even quit the program in that moment because they're like, this is, you know, this is totally BS. Like we did it exactly right. There's no reason we, we should get punished. In fact, we exceeded the standard. And that actually is the lesson. In our line of work, you can do things perfectly. You can do everything right. And it can go catastrophically wrong. So are you going to be a resilient individual and a resilient team to where you can even live in a space where you can do everything perfectly and you could lose your best friend on the battlefield? You could lose a helicopter full of 37 operators that did nothing wrong. It's just a lucky shot from a bad guy and everyone perished in that moment. And, and that's the lesson that it teaches that, um, you know, you can train, perform and practice is the highest level and still go wrong. And then you got to be the type of person that can pick themselves up, get back on the horse and keep riding, or are you going to cash in your chips and go do something else? And, and so random acts of instructor violence, I think, were one of our greatest strengths in the training because it just really developed a resiliency that was almost otherworldly on the battlefield. Thank you for that. I uh, love that story. In your second book called Worth Dying For, A Navy SEAL's Call to a Nation, one of my favorite chapters out of both of your books uh, is called Everyone Must Serve. Yeah. And it, it goes back to what you talked about earlier uh, about how you read Winston Churchill's book in college, which, you know, I went to Syracuse also, and I can admit I didn't read that book. So hats off yeah. to you for that. Uh, but you say everyone must serve. And then you've got in here, help yourself by helping others. Can you expand upon that for our listeners in terms of things that they can think about that maybe they haven't historically in terms of what they can do to, to help others or to, to rise up and what other types of service there could be out there. Yeah. Well, I'll talk about the service component first, which I think you keyed in on. And, and I agree. It's one of my favorite chapters. And it's one that 
I've wrestled a little bit with as how to kind of push forward. I think this is something that, you know, Congress, the Senate and senior leadership actually need to think. And, and, and I don't know, based on our current culture, if there's an appetite for this whatsoever, although I think a lot of the culture probably more so than the, you know, usually the talking heads in the regions of the country, you can imagine that seem to dominate the dialogue on our national you know, conversation. But is the idea of, of compulsory service to the country. Now, now there's, you know, Israel and some, you know, Scandinavian countries and several around the world that have compulsory military service, like every young man and and some of those countries, young men and women will serve, you know, whether it be a two year or one year, you know, kind of conscripted um, time in the military and then move on to whatever is happening in their life is not utterly what I mean. If, If you decided to serve in the military, that would certainly satisfy the requirement. But I think, we would create a game changer cultural shift if we actually made, you know, kind of universal service to the country, a mandatory requirement for young people. So let's say you graduate high school and you don't have plans to go to college. Okay. You're one year, but let's just put it at one year. You're one year of, of compulsory service starts. So you could work for, you know, some non-governmental agency, but the, the work needs to be done here. This is not an international type event. It is something at mm-hmm. home where you work at a food bank, you work at an outreach program, you work at a mental health place. You do, you do something to serve your fellow man, your fellow citizen for a block of time. If you grew up in Oregon, you got to do your service somewhere else. If you grew, you know, in Texas, if you grew up in Texas, you got to do it in New York City. You move people around, you put them on a subsistence wage. You really get diverse with, you know, you take a kid from, you know, south side of Chicago, a kid that grew up on a ranch in West Texas, somebody that grew up in the Bay Area, California, and all those kids get thrown into an environment where they have to serve others with a subsistence wage and just think of others before themselves. And then they can go on to whatever they want to do next. If you finish high school and you're going to college, great. You can defer and go to college. But when you finish college, you don't get to go right to Goldman Sachs. You have to serve for a year. I truly believe that that singular kind of program, which would which would take a lot of work to do, but it would not be impossible, um, would be a game changer for the way young people kind of mature and realize that the world is probably very different than just the singular place they grew up and thinking of others before themselves might guide them on a new path on what they're going to pursue. Um, so that that's my idea of, of service is this idea of actually making it part of our um, you know, cultural experience and growth. And I, I just think it would be an absolute game changer. You don't need to do much more than honestly be in a position where your job is helping someone else, whatever that looks like, to really kind of reframe some things in your mind about what's important, what we care about, what we value. I couldn't agree more with all, all of those points. Uh, and as you know, I never served in the military. I uh, didn't have the honor of wearing our nation's uniform. And I'm trying to, I'll say, make up for it now from my own perspective. But the phrase service above self is something that I, you know, is my gold standard and something I'm trying to teach my children as well. And so, you know, through the work that I try and do with nonprofits and local NGOs, things like that, that you mentioned, you know, there's a bigger world out there that's bigger than you in your hometown of, you know, Elmira, New York, where I grew up. Uh, Think about others. I totally agree with that in terms of how you can better them and better yourself at the same time to make this whole place, which is, you know, a hot mess right now, uh, a much better place, not only for us, but for our children and grandchildren going forward. So truly appreciate that chapter and a lot of life lessons uh, to come from that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I mentioned, absolutely. Go ahead. So that was your second book. 
anything on the horizon for another book or movie, anything like that coming up? Yeah, no, 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 nothing particularly hot in the entertainment space, although that's a weird beast. I get phone calls, you know, periodically for, <laughs> hey, this this project, this show. I'm very, very selective on making sure if I'm going to participate in something, it would represent, you know, both myself, my family, my, my you know, my family name, uh, the SEAL brotherhood that I've been a part of so long um, in the highest regard. So, so I won't do any of that stuff for, you know, the purpose of, of, of money or fame or any of that, if it, it'll move the needle and be something that teaches, uh, then, then I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, um, think about that project and kind of proceed with caution to see where it goes. Um, so nothing in that space, you know, that's, that's real hot right now in the writing space. Um, I've been too dormant on that front. I do enjoy it, although it's tremendous work, but I've got, um, I've got a couple in the queue right now. I've, I've got actually, um, speaking of the, the the writing that meant so much to me, I've got at least a concept and a little bit of a proposal on a book, um, you know, dealing with uh, with Winston Churchill and, and maybe a more contemporary look on what he meant to me, the lessons I could pull from him, both good and bad, uh, that I think uh, could be a real good piece of business. So I'm working on the proposal for that. And then I've had a bunch of people ask me to kind of throw my my hat in the ring on the, on the fiction side. And we'll see. I'm kind of trying to figure out a way to maybe enter that arena. But, um, you know, the books can dominate your life as you put time into those. So I've got a lot of the projects that are uh, that are on the on simmer and burning. So I got to figure out what I can achieve and, and do right by them. Great. Well, keep us posted on that. Would love to certainly get a hand, my hands on that and certainly we'll share that with the listeners. I will. I will. You know, and reading also a couple of things off your website here. A written ethos guides my leadership journey. You have an extensive library of exclusive leadership axioms. You know, reach for an inch, harmonic gate, don't settle for just okay. You know, are these things that you're building into your motivational speeches that you give? Is it just sort of who and what you are? Uh, will you have a coffee table book on works axioms? Uh, things like that. Yeah, the, the axioms are definitely kind of pulled um, you're deconstructed from a lot of the speaking and a lot of the principles and the stories I like to tell, you know, when I, when I do either a main stage event or even when I'm doing a smaller, you know, executive team or an individual executive kind of experience, I, I like telling stories. I think telling stories is how we, and, you know, sort of elders have communicated the lessons within a culture or the lessons from life, um, particularly to somebody that maybe hasn't heard it or experienced it in a very rich way and memorable way. I mean, I, I do a lot of speaking and, and if I'm on a speaking, uh, you know, program with five or six other speakers, I'll see some speakers get up and, and God bless them, but they'll, you know, have pie charts and PowerPoint slides that, that you know, <laughs> bring up graphs and numbers. And you, you can just see everybody in the audience, like drop their head down their iPhone and they start checking their fantasy football. But I, I tend to find very few people are looking on their phones when I tell, you know, hopefully an engaging, entertaining, you know, high impact, maybe be high, um, uh, you know, directive story that has a succinct punchline that you don't need to beat them up with. I mean, telling somebody, you know, uh, reach for an inch because you always have a little bit more in the tanks, you know, is actual physical experience. I do at some of my events that kind of creates a pretty neat experience for people that are there realizing that they do have more in the tank to give 
Um, and so those axioms grew out of that. And uh, yeah, maybe there'll be a time when I want to post those into a, yeah, like you said, a coffee table book or maybe something that goes on an executive or a team member's desk uh, that they can reference and yep. use. But I, I think these lessons that we learned in the military, um, that's how they do it there. You know, they either do it with a physical experience that usually goes poorly, but then you learn a great lesson or, or hold <laughs> you to a standard that you can't achieve, but then you realize that the effort trying to achieve it was worth the time in it and of itself. So um, that's what I try and do with those lessons. And, you know, I have a bunch of those posted on RourkeDenver.com and at my company Ever Onward that we try and, you know, translate to, you know, a civilian or somebody that might want to see the world in a different way. Uh, I love that. And, you know, one of your axioms is culture, culture, culture. And you say culture is the heart of an organization and yes, even a family. You know, you talk on your website and on your podcast, what a Navy SEAL can teach us about family culture. You know, I mentioned earlier in the show that we're saving the best for last, and I know what your family means uh, to you, as everyone's family does. Maybe you can talk a little bit first about how to handle being away from your family so long and, and having so many deployments, uh, what you learned from that, and how you transpose that to a positive, if you will. Yeah. And then, you know, to this point about what being a SEAL can teach us about family culture. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the real magic and the real class in any military family's act is, is the family, is, is not the soldier. It's that support network back home. And I don't think I realized what I asked of my family, both my bride and then, you know, my mom, my dad, my brother, an extended family um, to carry on their shoulders knowing that I was in harm's way and, and you know, going against uh, the toughest adversary you could be called to face you know, on the battlefield. But I think they knew the team I was a member of. I think they knew my personality, which doesn't make you bulletproof, but I think they knew I had as good a shot as anybody to come back from that. But yeah, the the family takes a tremendous toll. I mean, one thing I was very blessed and lucky for is my family supported me. I mean, both from my, you know, my dad, my mom, my brother had my full support. And if they were wrestling with tremendous anxiety, stress, or um, suffering on, on my behalf, they didn't show it to me in such a way that it distracted me from the focus of my mission. My bride was very much that way. And, and, and I think took, um, probably more of an emotional toll than I can ever appreciate in not letting me, um, have to deal with anything that was going wrong at home. I mean, you know, the, the pipes never burst when I was in town or we didn't have some major issue. To face when I was around. It was when I was doing something else, but I didn't know it usually until I came back. Cause she just knew I needed to focus on the mission. And she, she gave me that, um, that gift of, of focus. And, and I think even at this point in our life, as we transition off active duty, we're sort of un, undoing and unraveling some of those um, practices that, that served us well in that part of our life and probably don't serve us well now. So we're kind of relearning, you know, in some ways how to communicate, talk to one another and, and share, you know, dreams, shortcomings, failings and stuff that didn't really, wasn't a big part of our life. So, so, you know, that's, that's one of the real stories, but when it comes to culture and family, uh, you know, the things I learned from military were just, you know, making my family the number one thing and my focus that everything is informed by what can help grow that, uh, enrich it and take care of one another. I think the idea of service and sacrifice and thinking of others within your family before you think of yourself is just an elemental piece of what, you know, makes a family succeed at a high level. I think, you know, not being a drill instructor, but, you know, for my two kiddos, I'm not their friend, I'm their parent, and I'm going to guide them with discipline, focus, and tremendous love. But, 
ensure that they do hard things and that they realize that that doing hard things prepares them for when hard things come that no one gets to avoid in this life. I mean, we're all ending up in the same place, depending on your beliefs, but either way, we ain't getting out of this, uh, this game alive and living well in between the time you came into this world. And when you leave it is, is something that you can take on your shoulders and make what you so uh, that that's what I took from SEAL culture, and 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 my family is the uh, the fuel and the and the basic compass direction of my life, no doubt about it. I love that. Yeah, and you, you mentioned that in your book, and so thank you for sharing that. You know, we just a little bit of time left here. You know, do you want to share a little bit about your ever onward work that you're doing? Yeah, I appreciate it. You know, if if any of the listeners want to see more of what I got going on. Um, RourkeDenver.com is my website that brings you to my Ever Onward brand. And there's lots of offerings there, things you can download, a store, um, speaking points, these campfire sessions I did where I did some live speaking uh, around a campfire. And then the easiest thing to sign up for is something that I call my Commander's Coffee. So it's free. You go to my site, sign up for my Commander's Coffee. It's one video I send out a month. I don't try and beat you up with too much, but it just gives some great hard-hitting points on leadership, culture, human performance, family, whatever I'm thinking about current events. And that, that's a great way to engage and connect with, uh, with my programs. Great. Thank you for that. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been with Commander Rourke Denver, United States Navy SEAL. My name's Chris Meek. This is Next Steps Forward. Thank you all for joining us. Have a great week. We'll speak next week. Take care and God bless. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.